there's so many different types of businesses out there that until you start immersing yourself in how much is out there, you don't have a really good sense of how wide and deep the industry really is. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Hope you're doing well. Today, we have a good fortune to talk to Chad Griffiths. Chad is contacting us from Canada. Is that true? Chad, that's where you are? I know you're a man of many words. It is. It is. Western Canada. I like to use Yellowstone as the benchmark. So people that watch Yellowstone, they're familiar with the Dutton family ranch. I'm yeah. straight north of that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chad, for coming on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on and really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I mean, we had a good conversation just before the chat. So, you know, a little bit about Chad's background. Chad is a broker and a partner at one of the commercial brokerage firm out in Canada, but he's exploring and predominantly industrial sector. And then he's looking to expand into Texas and Florida and other areas and be actively looking. So wealth of knowledge when it comes to industrial sector. So Chad, I'm not going to further butcher your background. So I'm going to let you tell us what do you do? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. And so it's interesting because when I first got into industrial real estate back in 2005, I knew very little about it myself. And I actually accidentally stumbled into the industry. I wanted to get into commercial real estate. I thought I'd be working either in office towers or shopping malls, kind of that glamorous side of commercial yeah. real estate that people think about. And it just so happened that the brokerage that I joined focused in on industrial. So it was a steep learning curve. I had to jump in and figure out what it is, how to make a living in it. And it was by accident, but it was a great accident because fast forward to today, a partner at the firm, but 2014, I started buying properties on my own, building my own portfolio of industrial properties. And I've got partners on everything that I own, but portfolio has grown to be about $25 million worth of industrial properties, roughly about 150,000 square feet worth of uh, different types of industrial properties. And our mandate is to pretty much add a property a year. I've been focused on Western Canada, but I do have plans to start exploring other areas. I was in Texas a few months ago. I really like the Texas market as a whole. And Florida, as you mentioned, is also another one that's pretty interesting to me as well. So it was a big learning curve, but I'm very glad that I did it because it's been a very rewarding career for me. Now, it seems like it definitely seems like Chad. Now, Chad, I do want to qualify one thing that when you said the 25 million, a lot of our guests are also syndicators. So I think this 25 million, you told me this is not syndicated. This is you and your partners own it outright, correct? Yeah, so we haven't syndicated. We might look to do that in the future, but right now we've just been growing the portfolio with our own internal funds. And mm -hmm. it was partly my main partner and I, uh, we're also partners in our business together. We've had rewarding careers where we've been fortunate to make good amount of money where we could also invest. So we've right. grown our portfolio by reinvesting the income that we've had. Uh, over time, you can start doing more creative things by once you own properties. So yeah, we haven't syndicated yet. Might do that some point down the road. Awesome. Well, we hope to look forward to have you back once you start syndicating as well, because we love that journey. I'm a syndicator myself here. So, so Chad, let's talk about, I mean, this is the first time we're having somebody, the subsector within real estate of the industrial sector. So help us understand a little bit about that sector. What's happening? What are you seeing in the market? And how does that current economic situation, I don't know much about Canadian economics right now, 
But uh, since you're tracking both the North America and the Canada, the US and the Canada, it'll be good to understand from your perspective, where do you see the distinctions? Where do you see differences? And where do they do merge if they do? Yeah, there is a lot of similarities, actually. I would say that Canada could almost be viewed as the little brother of the U.S. Mm -hmm. So what happens in the U.S. will probably end up happening in Canada as well. And we're major trading partners. There's We share the largest border in the world. So there's a lot of trade back and forth. So our economies are hinged on each other's success. Mm -hmm. So even see this in a lot of the economic data that's come out recently. When the U.S. has GDP go up a certain amount, Canada usually seems to be very close to it. When in Interest rates go up in the U.S. Canada seems to be very close with it. Inflation numbers, I believe uh, U.S. in December was 6.5% year over year. Canada was 6.3%. So the economies are very, very close. What I like about the U.S. and what attracts me to consider it is I love that entrepreneurial spirit, especially in some of the states like Texas and Florida, where the government almost seems to stay out of the way of the private industry. I know in some of the other states like New York and California, the government can put a pretty heavy hand on business and development. Industrial development is a good example. There's a number of counties in California that are putting warehouse moratoriums in place where they're putting a time limit on where new warehouses can't even be built. So those more unfriendly business attitudes, that's not appealing to me, but I do mm-hmm. really like the areas like Texas and California, which is similar to actually our market. Where you we meant try Texas to have and that. Florida, not Texas and California, right? I like Texas and Florida. I don't like, I'm not yeah, a fan of I California. I think you just, you just said Texas and California, so I wanted to clarify. Well, yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for correcting me. That is a big difference. <laughs> huge, difference. A huge difference. Just on, just on two different yeah. coasts. That's all. Yeah, no, I think, I think that makes sense, Chad. next month, but I don't want to invest there. <laughs> yeah, I think we have our own uh, philosophies of where to invest. And there's, of course, one of the criteria that we always look for is what state and even within the states, what counties and stuff are more business-friendly than the other. There's always one better than the other. But let's actually take yeah. a broader, like a macro perspective, right? What's happening? Help us understand the industrial space. Give us your perspective from a broker because you can, you can do an on-the-field job for us, right? Kind of like what's happening, where are the opportunities, what the future of that is, where do you see it going, especially with the supply chain constraints right now? Because they, I mean, they may be relaxing, but there's definitely going to be a challenge. So how do you see it all playing together? Give us a broad stroke on that sector. Yeah, so I think the first thing we need to do is actually delineate industrial real estate into two different categories because industrial real estate is a very broad term. So Mm -hmm. I typically like to say industrial, there's a manufacturing component to it and then there's the warehousing component. And warehousing is what everybody's familiar with lately because everyone sees these big Amazon distribution centers, FedEx buildings. These are like the large million, two million square foot buildings that are usually in prominent locations. So you might see it off a major highway. You might see the next to an airport. Those are the warehouse side. And that's grown in huge popularity, largely because of e-commerce. So mm-hmm. as e-commerce has grown, not even just over the last few years with the situation, everything we had to deal with, but e-commerce has been growing at a steady pace for decades now. So that anytime we have that e-commerce uptick, that requires more warehousing space. It's one of the reasons Amazon's grown to be one of the largest companies in the world. They're also one of the largest users of warehouse space in the world. That has actually seen a little bit of a slowdown over the last year. And it's in part because 
once the pandemic restrictions were lifted and people felt more comfortable going out in person again, all of a sudden people were going to brick and mortar retailers. And interestingly, Amazon is actually read an article this morning. They're planning on laying off 18,000 people. Last year, they said that they were cutting back on their warehouse expansion. They had announced that they were going to either sublease or cancel up to 30 million square feet worth of warehouse projects they had planned. So that put a, a dampen on that warehouse side of the business. It's still strong. There's still growing demand. There's low vacancy rates all over North America, but there definitely is going to be a cooling off section to that. The other side, which has been left a little bit in the, in the afterthought, is that manufacturing side. And North America was largely industrialized on that manufacturing side of, of real estate. The industrial mm -hmm. revolution, everything manifested itself into making things in North America. That's how the mm -hmm. U.S. became the global power that they are today. That shifted somewhere in the late 70s, early 80s as tried attracting a lot of that manufacturing work. A lot of that manufacturing work got offshored to... China and other Asian countries. And that's why we have the Rust Belt. The Rust right. Belt got its name because of all that industrialization, which then got offshored, left a lot of old buildings. Everyone can look at Detroit as a good example of the auto sector that was once very vibrant and then went into decline. Now, the interesting part about that is I actually see a shift towards reshoring or mm -hmm. onshoring that manufacturing back. And there's actually a lot of reasons we can point to. Companies like John Deere are bringing manufacturing back from China, building a plant in the US to put their harvesters in. Other companies are looking to, uh, to bring back manufacturing. The CHIPS Act that uh, mm -hmm. Biden uh, brought in last year, that whole thing is to, I think it was, I think it was $52 billion that they're planning nice, on yeah. investing in the high-tech sector. Warehousing side might see a slowdown. I'm actually pretty encouraged by the return of manufacturing jobs to North America. And I see that being the next boom for the industrial real estate market. I love that what you said, right? Because I think every sector has a cycle. And yeah, <laughs> warehousing saw uptick in the last probably decade or so, more so in the last four or five years. But I could also see that you know, for all the reasons that we just elaborated on, that it's going to shift from one sector to another, but industrial as a whole is always going to be in demand. And we always need mm -hmm. people. Now, do you lump office into industrial as well, or that's a different sector? Great question. And so I said that there's two main sections, the warehousing and the manufacturing. I usually include a third one as well, and that's called flex properties. And okay. flex is meant to describe all the industrial properties which are used for other purposes than manufacturing or warehousing. And so one building that we actually own is a industrial zone building. It looks very industrial, but it's on a major road in our city. So we actually have an office user, which occupies about a third of it. So just pure office user. Then we have a hot tub company. We have a flower store in there, a cabinet store. That's a true flex property because we don't have any manufacturing or warehousing right. tenants in there, but it's, it's still an industrial property. So absolutely, you can certainly include office Got in it. there. Most people, when they think of office, they'll think of like that downtown, like the of central course. business district where the right. skyscrapers are and, and that hub of business. But there's a lot, a considerable amount of office users that are in suburban industrial buildings. Got it. So, Chad, let's switch topic here. I'm, and we'll stay on the same industrial topic, but I want to ask a different question here. So, you know, we do uh, multifamily is a bread and butter for me. That's how I've created my passive wealth. That's how I've created my financial freedom. 
So when we look at industrial as a space, and it's new to me, that's domain is not, I have to be honest, that's domain is I'm not exposed myself to that sector yet. So I would love to use this as an education for me and to my listeners. So when we talk about industrial space, I'm assuming, especially in manufacturing, where we're going for going towards now, when we say that, how are the returns looking like, right? So when we look at the components of returns, there's usually two major components, right? Like any other deal. There's cash flow component and there's an appreciation component at the time of disposition. So when we look at manufacturing, I'm assuming most of the investment opportunities require some sort of capex to make it production ready. If it's, especially if you're talking about manufacturing, it's not going to be operational day one. So it'll be more like a development deal in real estate in a residential or multifamily versus a property that's already ready cash flow day one. So how do you look at the industrial, if you can help me understand that and how you're structuring the deals? Really great question. And I'd frame it by first saying that there's trade-offs in everything. So I'm not anti-multifamily by any means, but being pro-industrial means that I've made a decision not to pursue multifamily and I, I pursue industrial. The trade-off in my mind is that, like you said, it's capital intensive. If you're turning over a tenant, it can be a significant amount of money. You have to spend a retrofit or upgrade the space for the next tenant that's in there. There's usually a lot more money uh, required to get into a Mm -hmm. project. For an industrial building, we usually average 25 to 35% down payment going towards the building. Whereas in multifamily, I know there's a lot of programs where you can have a lot higher loan-to-value mortgage. So that requires their... Not not anymore, Chad. I'm in... uh... Um, hopefully no one's taking over 60% LTV because if you are, that property is going to be at risk. The spread right now between interest rates and cap rates, you're right. A lot of people are probably looking at negative leverage right now, if anything. So you're right. Maybe that's, it's a bad idea. So maybe we should almost look at it pre 2023, even mid 2022 when interest rates started going up. It's also, there's a steeper learning curve to get into it. Due diligence costs are a lot more to get into it. By the time you do a building condition assessment an appraisal, an environmental site assessment, have a lawyer look over any leases or any necessary Mm -hmm. documents you could easily be in the ten dollars to $15,000 range just for due diligence. Sure. And if you don't proceed on that property, that's a large sunk cost. Right, so right. there's a lot more to get into it. The trade-off in my mind on what I like about industrial more is that you have longer-term tenants and you have the ability to scale. And just as a quick example, one property that we own, roughly a $3 million building, we have a Fortune 1000 company that's the single tenant in there and they take care of everything. The way that our lease is structured is that they're responsible for any of the maintenance they're responsible for anything to do with the property is their responsibility unless it's structural or a bigger issue mm-hmm. they take care of everything so for for yourself if you were to buy a three million dollar multifamily property i'm guessing you're probably looking 10 to 15 different tenants in there depending on the market Maybe it more, might be right more it all less. depends upon how many units are there so each unit has a different tenant. yeah so if they got 15 each units they have 15 tenant. different tenants if there's 100 there's 100 different tenants and you're turning over those tenants a lot, off, Every, a lot more at often. At least a year, if not sooner, right? Some of them get turned around. There's, again, Absolutely. pros and cons of that, right? If there's a troubled tenant, you can at least, you know, at the end of the year or at the end of the lease, they can be out. So there's yep. pros and cons for that. But yes, you're right. The turn is pretty high as compared to, I'm assuming, industrial. And that really speaks to the benefit in my mind is that that tenant that we have in there, we bought it. The tenant had been in there for 10 years previously. We bought it with a five-year lease and they have an option to renew. So in a perfect world, hopefully they just renew. 
the management required to physically manage that property is so much less intensive than having to manage an, an equivalent right. $3 million multifamily property. So from my mind, it's a lot easier to scale that industrial property. You have a lot more certainty because you're dealing with corporations as opposed to dealing with residential tenants. Mm -hmm. The law in most jurisdictions tends to favor, heavily favor residential tenants over residential landlords. So any dealing with evictions, dealing with anything that comes up on the residential side can be very cumbersome. On the industrial and commercial in general, we just follow contract law. So providing there is some overarching government involvement, which is very, very rare, we just follow contract law. So you're dealing with corporations. Mm -hmm. If it has to come to it, there's all sorts of legal strategies you can use to try and ideally you want to work with the tenant. But if things break down it's contract law versus dealing with residential tenancy law so it's much easier to deal with it i've owned some houses in the past i would have a very hard time kicking out a family because they weren't paying their rent versus a company that doesn't pay their rent which is rare in itself there's just a different mindset there it's dealing with corporations you get to see their financial statements you get to how much money do they have in the bank what's their profit and loss statement look like versus the residential side trade-offs for sure because I, and you you mentioned this as well is that if you have a tenant leave it can be significant not just right. in terms of if that tenant leaves we lose 100 percent of our cash flow right. versus right. you have one tenant leave in a 15 unit building you still have 14 other tenants paying the rent so definitely trade-offs mm. people have to be familiar and comfortable with the pros and the cons of whatever mm. they're doing and accept that if i could just circle back i yeah. probably have a follow-up question on that but if i could circle back to the return part i've looked at this pretty extensively they actually balance out but even though you're paying less on capper for multifamily than you'll see on industrial for the most part by the time you actually look at like a five or ten year pro forma and you you make all your assumptions and and you get your disposition price and you calculate your internal rate of return or your cash on cash return they're actually pretty similar it's just whether someone what their risk profile is and what they want to do from a management perspective on how hands-on they want to be versus having more of a hands-off investment, but definitely trade-offs in either sector. And I love that. I think this is why we have the show because uh, not one sector is good for everyone, right? The people can make pick and choose on the right opportunities. It's just more whatever your thesis is, there is an asset class that matches your thesis. You just got to figure that out, right? Exactly. And that's why, thank you again for coming on the show. So just kind of taking that conversation a little bit forward. So what's a typical life cycle of an industrial deal, right? So let's say you acquire, put a contract on January 1st. Would you acquire a land? Would you acquire an existing building? And then kind of help us walk through from that phase and a typical timeline to when a tenant occupies it and starts producing Yeah. And I love that intro into that because it does identify two different mindsets of looking at real estate investing. And this can be in any asset class. Mm -hmm. It's almost a spectrum. On one end, you have the pure value add investors. And on the other end, you just have investors that want to have stabilized cash flow. And they're almost like coupon clippers, right? They're buying a bond or they're buying a treasury where they just want to have the stabilized cash flow come in there. They don't want to have to do a lot of work. So on that spectrum, I look at development as pure value add because you have no cash flow coming Mm -hmm. in. You're buying a piece of land. You're probably taking on construction financing at 
400 basis points higher than what you could get traditional financing for. You're having to build your model on the assumption that it's going to take you time and it can take a year to two years, perhaps even longer, depending on the size of the development to get it from dirt under contract, having your architect design it, having the engineers involved, getting all the permits, taking it to tender, that whole process, and then lease up because it's not guaranteed you're just going to have tenants as soon as you have Mm -hmm. the structure put up and open the doors. So by the time you go through the lease up, do your takeout financing with the lender, that can be a two-year process. And you have to be pretty confident in all of your assumptions. And you have to be pretty confident that the economy isn't going to go through a major shift during that two years as well. I don't have that risk appetite. I'm more on the side of the other end of the spectrum where I can take some vacancy in a portfolio. I -hmm. wouldn't be able to do a development. I just don't have that tolerance for risk that some people do. My tolerance for risk is even the one building we bought with the tenant in place, I wouldn't have even bought that building vacant, hoping that we'd get a tenant because then you're the same thing. All your mortgage expenses, your property taxes, your Mm -hmm. operating level expenses for the property, you're incurring all of that until you find a tenant. Then you have to assume what it's going to cost to to lease it once you do all the improvements. So I'm more on the conservative side where I can take risk from the standpoint that buying real estate is a risky endeavor. Mm-hmm. If we didn't want risk, we'd just go and buy a T-bill and park yeah. the money in there. We take on risk in this business, whether we like it or not. But if you can buy a property that has tenants in there for some foreseeable future, or it's in a market that you know is going to continue to do well, multifamily or industrial, I think that that's less risky, but Mm -hmm. the returns are also less. The developers, they might want to see a 30% internal rate of return to justify that risk, whereas I'm probably comfortable with a 12 to 15% internal rate of return. So it's all commensurate, risk reward. Always is, right? I love what you said that. So I think I'm assuming, let me read, let me just kind of synthesize that for me. But there are two ways to approach an industrial, and we'll, we'll talk specifically about manufacturing for now. We'll leave the other sub-asset classes aside. So within the manufacturing, you have two different options, ground-up development, where you know what kind of property you want to develop. And the second one is you take over existing building, and either there's an existing tenant or you retrofit it to for somebody else, a new tenant, right? There's really two different options, and you're inclining more towards the latter one, which is you buy an existing building, and hopefully with an existing tenant, which has a long survivability, but if not, at least it's tenant ready or close to tenant ready, right? Is that a fair assumption? That's very well said. Perfect. So now when we do that, so let's talk about that. So when you're doing your due diligence from the day you put it on contract, actually, let, let's, let's take one step back. There's so many questions, Chad. It's an interesting <laughs> conversation. So when you're looking at this asset class, right? So who's your typical tenant for you? Are we talking about these chip manufacturing who have their proprietary machines. You're talking about like a commercial kitchen. Who are your typical tenants? Great point. And funny that you say commercial kitchen. So the first property that I ever bought was a small industrial property. And the tenant that was in there was a company that serviced kitchen equipment. So their whole business was going around to different restaurants that had would have a stove breakdown or a grill right. breakdown or whatever it was. And they would try to fix it on site. And if they couldn't fix it on site, they'd bring it back to the shop, the, the same one that I bought. So their shop was filled with random kitchen equipment and motors and components like you name it it was probably one of the most filled with useless garbage 
spaces I've ever seen, but they had such a viable business because you can appreciate all the different kitchens out there. When things break down, they have to call somebody. So these guys had a very vibrant business. Uh, They ended up selling their business and the new owner took the business to his garage on an acreage, but we ended up putting a new tenant in there, which was a machine shop. So lathes and mills, and they basically just machined things for their mm-hmm. customers. The thing that if anybody is interested in industrial real estate, and I'm a full on industrial real estate nerd, like I love this stuff at a passion. I can see that, I man. I can see the music, yeah. the music in your voice. <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny because, like I said earlier, I stumbled into this and I couldn't Mm. have been more grateful because it's become a true passion of mine. But if somebody is interested in learning more, and this ties in, this loops into the question that you had asked, take an afternoon on a weekend when these industrial parks are usually slower and just go and drive through the industrial areas in your city. And you can do this on Google Street View as well, but nothing comes close to actually getting in your car on a Saturday afternoon. And I still do this myself and just driving around to see the different types of businesses that are operating out of there. See if there's any new activity that's coming in, maybe see a new for sale sign or a lease sign. You'll discover so much about the wheels of commerce that exist in all of our backyards, but most people aren't familiar with because you're just not driving around in industrial parks all the time, but it's staggering. So just to give you some quick numbers, Chicago has about a billion square feet worth of industrial real estate, a billion square feet. It's an astronomical number that most people in Chicago would have no idea. They might interrupt you when we talk about that, just to get a perspective, are these all horizontal spaces or when we talk about billion, they're all vertical and horizontal both? The vast majority, like 99% plus, would be uh, one-story buildings. In certain areas, we are seeing two and even higher-story buildings just because there's a shortage of available land. So even Amazon, actually, even in our market, we have a roughly 3 million square foot Amazon building, which is a five-story building, and we've got tons of land. There is some movement towards multi-story industrial, but 99% is single-level. Got it. Uh, Okay. It's all flat. Yeah. So like driving around in one of these industrial areas is eye opening for a number of reasons. You just, you get to see how much is actually happening for commerce in your city. And then you just get to see all these different buildings and businesses. What I really like to talk about, because I'm still surprised, I've been doing this for 18 years now, and I'm still surprised some of the businesses that come up. I went through a space late last year and it was an arcade repair business. So all this company did was repair about video games that would either people would either have in their house like duck hunter or pinball or something like that or it was in a business and it was the same as the kitchen repair guy he'd go out to the site he'd try to repair it if he couldn't the pinball machine or the arcade game would come back to his shop and i think he had 50 or 60 different of these arcade games all in oh my god i want to be there i want to be there chad i want to be there just as a i'm like hey can i just come and see your business no i'm really there to play the games it was just lights and noises going off everywhere. Yeah. You're kind of like in the behind the scenes of how the arcade business actually works. But it just goes to show like there's so many different types of businesses out there that until you start immersing yourself in how much is out there, you don't have a really good sense of how wide and deep the industry really is. Right. No, I, mean, I, I can imagine, right? Because and this also very market dependent. Some are more manufacturing centric. Some are more repair services centric. And all of these have, so if somebody has a services business, let's say a plumbing repair company, they don't necessarily have any machines in-house because they actually go, would that 
qualify to be in one of your buildings or that would classify as an office building? No, I'd still put them as an industrial tenant because they almost certainly have equipment for their plumbing business. They probably have a few vans. Got so it. they probably want to keep their vans parked inside. Some would do outside, of course, but mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of those companies want to bring their stuff in, especially if, if they've got a lot of supplies and equipment in those vans and they right. don't want them broken into. Absolutely. Like a plumbing company is a great example. You can expand that to be electricians, HVAC companies that are servicing air conditionings and rooftop units. There's so Uh, many companies that are involved in this and they all fall into an industrial space because they need to have that shop, whether they're working on their equipment or they need to have a place to store things, store supplies. mm -hmm. A plumbing company might want to go and buy 20 hot water heaters in advance of the upcoming season just so as they know that there's going to be demand for it they don't have to wait for their supplier they just have them on hand so they can install them right away Uh, so those type of tenants are always going to be in industrial real estate they're always going to have a requirement for it and that's why i think that there's always going to be some inherent demand got it so chad when you're thinking about the risk we're talking about risk adjusted returns so the cycle of the economy where we're in right now the business cycle is definitely Things are shifting, right? And unfortunately, not in our favor. And there are bad times coming. How bad or how good, we will never know until it happens. But there's definitely a shift that's happening, right? So some of the businesses may start to suffer, especially if depending upon what kind of business they're in. And people may start to be having less discretionary income, like you were talking about, laying layoffs at Amazon and other companies. It's becoming a norm right now, unfortunately. And a lot of people are struggling. And hopefully it doesn't go too crazy, but you never know. So how, when you're putting that lens on top of your acquisitions for yourself and for your clients, how are you evaluating an industrial park, industrial deal right now? Because, you know, we were talking about plumbers and we were talking about these arcades and all that stuff. People may choose to delay some of the repairs so their business may go down. How are you marrying the macro of what's happening in the economy to to the risks that the tenant may have on the property? Yeah, and I do agree that there is some pain coming. There's an economic storm rolling in. And the analogy that I like to use is that a storm doesn't affect everybody the same way. Mm -hmm. And you could use a figurative or a literal storm, but let's use a literal storm. If you're standing outside and you don't have an umbrella and a storm rolls in, you're going to be affected a lot more than somebody that's sitting inside their house. Mm -hmm. So I think People need to be aware that there is a storm coming. I don't see any way that we don't see more economic downturn. You're seeing it in retail sales declining it. You're seeing in all the massive layoffs going on all over. I don't see a way around some sort of storm hitting us this year. I subscribe to the notion, though, that anybody that's investing in real estate of any capacity should have a longer term outlook on it. There are people that can flip properties and they can do developments and get in and out quickly. I think even them though, they should also have a long-term strategy just in case. And it could be a developer that's in the middle of a development right now and perhaps the development's coming to a close this summer. And that could be a low point in the economy if my tea leave reading is correct. Right. What do you do if there isn't a market for someone to buy that property or someone to lease it? Well, I think you should still have a long-term outlook on that as your last resort. What happens if there isn't there? Have some sort of contingency in place in case things don't go as you had built on your pro forma. And for the developer, it might mean putting a tent in there for on a short term just to ride through whatever economic downturn we're about to face. And I think if people have that approach, then 
I've gone through the great recession, 2008, 2009, 2010, call it. I've gone through that. If one thing that I've learned through that is that it's we're in a constant state of cycles and nothing lasts forever. You can't have yeah. good times forever and you don't have bad times forever. We still came through the great recession and the economy recovered in relatively short order. So I do think that there's pain coming. I think for the people that have the foresight to say, we need to be able to buy in every market. If you're an investor, you you need to be fine-tuning your, mm-hmm. uh, your investments, and that might mean adding to them. It might mean selling underperforming ones. But we always need to be tinkering. As much as people like to think as real estate as a hands-off investment, you always need to be managing that. We're asset right. managers just as much as we're real estate investors. So I think you need to be able to buy in every market buy in downturns, buy good opportunities as they come available, buy in in great times, buy all the way through and be able to sell all the way through. But most importantly, you need to be be able to manage all the way through. So that protecting your investment as much as you can, being an asset manager, looking at it from a standpoint that you are a manager of that property and you need to see that's financial success Mm -hmm. all the way through this. I'm a long-term investor myself. A lot of my capital, I've earmarked it as being 10, 20, 30 year essentially forever money because my kids might inherit at some point. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking personally to say I need to sell this property in the next year because the economic situation might prohibit that. So I take the approach, buy real estate, do the best job you can with the information that you have available. That's how we can make decisions. We can't try to forecast what's going to happen. We can't even forecast what's going to happen tomorrow. We really have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. But over a long period of time, and I've seen this myself historically, long before I became an investor, historically, you see this upward trend. There's troughs and there's peaks along the way, but it's an upward trend. So long as you're bullish on the long-term prospects of Mm -hmm. Canada, the US, North America, the world for that matter, I think you find a way to buy and sell in any given time. And having good people on your team, I think is also very important. So you want to have a strong network of people that you're looking for information on, whether you're following podcasts like your own, whether you've got friends or colleagues in the space, should have a good lawyer, a good mortgage broker, a good relationships with your bank, your broker. There's just so many things that you can evaluate, take all that information in. And that's kind of how I like to summarize it is just make the best decision you can with the information you have available. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more on that, right? Because I think one of the things always is people get overly excited in good times and paralyzed (laughs) in when they expect the bad times are coming, right? But I think as an astute investor, you can make both of these things as your friends. You just do things differently, right? You underwrite the deals differently. You take different considerations. But that doesn't mean one is good and one is bad. I think the one thing that I really love what you said, which is what I follow is, so the, you know, there are two types of returns we're talking about. There are two types of risks. One is a long-term risk and the other is a short-term risk. The long-term risk is your thesis on whether long-term this is going to appreciate in value or not. So if you, of course, if there's no long-term horizon of that asset class is going to be increasing in value, you really got to ask yourself why you're in it, right? But the second term is a short-term risk. And the short-term risk right now that I see is also is you can meet your debt, right? I mean, most of us will have a leverage Mm -hmm. on the real estate asset, regardless of the asset type. It's how much you have is a question, not if you have leverage. So you want to make sure that the the debt covenants are met, right? So one of the things that you said, which was really important is, you may not get a tenant, the top paying tenant, but as long as you feel your, your, what's your break even, 
to at least meet the debt obligation to make sure you're not foreclosing on it or you don't have, you're not forced to sell in the times that you don't want to. So if you just put those sort of underwriting conditions on top of it, then you know you're sort of covered, right? And also, I would say in your case, and I would love to get your perspective, you probably don't want to buy an industrial building or industrial, not a park, but an asset which is only good for one sector, right? So the only thing that can happen there is semiconductor chip manufacturing. I'm using that as an example, because if there's a downturn in that sector, you're screwed, right? Then that makes sense that as you're underwriting, you got to figure out if plumbing is down, will something else jump up, right? And can my building retrofit both different types of sectors or not? So I think those are the things I'm assuming you are considering as you're underwriting. Is that fair? That is the first step that I take in every property that I look at is identifying the downside risk. And Mm -hmm. that downside risk is exactly what you said. What happens when that property goes vacant? It will go vacant. Every single property in the world will be vacant at some point. Even if you had a 20-year tenant in there, even if you had the U.S. government as your tenant, they're storing files in there. So you lease a Mm -hmm. warehouse to the U.S. government. At some point, they are going to leave. That might be 20 years, but they will leave. So what is that property worth when it's vacant? As opposed to just looking at the rosy picture of how good this investment could look with the cash flow that you have planned, what happens when it goes vacant? What is the market on the sale basis if you decide to sell? What's the market to release it? How much are you going to have to spend to retrofit it for the next tenant? That's Mm -hmm. the first step that I go through before I start doing any actual pro forma calculations, because I think that that is where you protect your down downside risk. And protecting downside risk, as a conservative investor myself, I want to look at that area before I start looking at how great it might be if all my assumptions come true. No, I think that's exactly right to all my investors. I don't look at the upside because upside is not in your control. As long as you can protect your downside, if the asset is real estate, you already know at some point in future, it could be two years, 10 years, five years, nobody knows that time, right? We all have, nobody has a crystal ball at some point is going to give us the returns. But as long as you're down, so you got to protect your principal because if you start losing your principal, you could be screwed. Yes, yeah, Warren Buffett's rule, right? Is don't lose money. Yeah, don't rule lose money. Two, rule number one. Rule number two, rule never one. forget rule number one. I agree, man. I use that a lot of times. <laughs> Chad, well, yeah. you know what? I, I think we can, can I, go. Yeah, please go ahead. Oh, I was going to, can I just add one part on the debt because please. it triggered something uh, just that, that I, I wanted to add on that real quick. For anybody that does get in a position where they perhaps can't meet their debt obligations, I think the worst thing that people do, and this is what always leads to the foreclosure process, is that they pretend that it's not a problem. And mm. they perhaps don't want to have a conversation with their lender, or they just hope that the situation is going to get better. And that's a surefire way to put yourself in position for foreclosure. So if you are in that position, banks do not want to take back properties. There's a right. misconception out there that once people start Start making their payments, the banks just want to foreclose. Banks do not want to be in the business of owning real estate. They want to be in the business of lending money on real estate. And not to say that this is, is going to be a surefire way to dig yourself out of the hole, but I think you increase your chances of having a successful outcome if you just have a, a forward conversation with the lender. And it might be very awkward. It might be uncomfortable. But if the conversation goes, listen, I, I just, I can't make my obligations. This tenant left uh, or they're not paying their rent and it's causing me to not have cash flow. I want to come up with a solution. I've come up with a few different ideas on how we can avoid this having to go into foreclosure. Perhaps I can extend the amortization. Perhaps you can give me a few Mm -hmm. months of interest only payments. 
perhaps you can just uh, give me some relief on this. And maybe you've got to give me a $30,000 window of no payments, but we'll just add that onto the amortization. Lenders appreciate that that conversation much more than just not paying your your mortgage and them trying yeah. to call you and find out what's going on. Try and get ahead of that problem early. We haven't seen a lot of that in the last 10 years because the market has been pretty good. If we do go into an economic downturn and people are put in that position, have that conversation with your lender, swallow your pride, suppress your ego for a little bit and just have that conversation because if you can weather this storm, I'm a big believer that if we have a tough 2023, it'll probably mean we have a really good 2023 and 2025. That's just what I've seen on recessions. So you're far better off to just try and weather this storm that I keep using that metaphor and do your best. Like you said, you said it perfectly. Make your debt obligations. If you can't make your debt obligations, come up with a plan, come up with a system and work with your lender and show them that you're committed to seeing this through as opposed to the worst thing a real estate investor can do is let a property go into foreclosure. Correct. I think that actually applies to the concept of debt. And you talked about if you're in trouble, talk, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. a matter of when you'll be, in, it's, it's actually not a matter of if you're in trouble, it's a matter of usually when you're in trouble, right? Because sometimes it may not be economic down cycle, it's an economic cycle, it may be some, your vacancies up out of no control of your own, right? Mm-hmm. So I think not to your point, banks are not in the business to manage properties. They are not. Right. So they're not looking to foreclose it and manage it and make money on it. It's going to sit on their balance sheet and it does not look good on a bank. A real estate asset does not look good on a bank's balance sheet. They're not in the business to manage properties. That's where we are exist. Right. So I think talk to your banks in general, industrial and non-industrial. If you got trouble, you make sure you seek help. So Chad, one thing I want to talk about is, right, so you're the first broker we have on the show. So thank you for showing up on the show. What's the best way to work with a broker, my friend? Right. Because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of misnomers that brokers don't have time. So some of listener base may be active. So for those, for the purpose of, to help them, I want to understand that if somebody is a syndicator, somebody is a property owner, an investor, and they want to work with broker like yourselves, what's the best way? Yeah. And it's not even a misnomer. It, it is true. It's hard getting top brokers to work with investors. And I'll just explain why real quickly, because people might be confused on that or unclear on why that would even mm-hmm. exist. But most top brokers probably have a pretty good portfolio of clients that they work with already. So they might like a top broker, a, an investment broker might have 20 clients that they've worked with in the past. So if a really good property comes available, are they likely to send it to one of their clients that they have a track record with that they know will be able to close and not have major issues or will they send it to someone that they haven't worked with before Mm. and they don't know if they have a track record so it it really is just it's a business they're treating it as a business on what's their best opportunity to have a successful close and until they're comfortable working with a new investor it's very difficult for them to crack into it what i'd recommend is talk to more than one person so Mm -hmm. i've found looking in other markets myself, the best way to do it is to f- see if there, if you can get a, a referral. Having a referral come in is very powerful versus just trying to reach out to a broker and say, yeah. hey, I, this is what I'm looking for. It can still be done. And I think that there are tactics that people can do. But if you ha- can get a referral, a warm introduction, that'll go a long way. If you are just trying to start cold, try to frame conversation, not so much about 
you as the investor on everything that you've done and everything you're looking for, but try and frame it on as a win-win situation. So here's why I'm interested in this space. Here's my track record on it. I want to work with you on this because I think we can have a win-win relationship where we both benefit from this. Mm-hmm. That's a very short way of describing how I would go through the process, but I think you have to make it, you have to talk to more than one person because you might talk to someone that just has a lot on their plate at the moment. If you're talking to a guy that's working on 10 different deals, you're going to fall very low on his priority list. So talk to more people. You might find someone that's actually in a little bit of a slow period. So I, I like the idea of getting referrals and recommendations. It's just an easy way to get that conversation started mm-hmm. and just commit to talking to more than one. Yeah, so I think I love that because you can't, people can get discouraged, especially starting. I, I remember my, me starting out five years ago. I just won't get a return phone call from a broker. I'm like, no, I, I would take it personally. I think it's not, it's not personal. It's really, they're running a business, right? They're not running a charity as a broker as well. So it takes a while to get to a point where people, you get your name around and people feel like you're comfortable, that you, they, they know you'll close a the deal. They're, as a broker, as like any other businessman, is making sure the transaction gets done. For yep. them to feel that you need to have a relationship with them, yes, but it takes time to establish that, like anything else. And I think what you said was great. Approach it like a relationship, not a transaction. So every relationship mm-hmm. is like a gardening, right? It takes time. You got to nurture the plant. You got to, and then eventually the fruit's going to come. If you're not on day one, right? So be patient and be diligent and be persistent. It'll work. Yeah, great point. And just to even go back to that another point, you got to suppress your ego. Like it's, we have a lot of ego yeah. in this business. We, you have some success, you make some money. All of a sudden, you're you're walking around thinking right. that you're this right. big deal, and you think, while well, this person's not returning my call, who do they think they are? Don't they know who I am? And I think that that's very dangerous in in general. Is that we collectively we is I'm sure I've been guilty of this myself too but we think higher of ourselves when Mm -hmm. really we're just in the business of doing deals we're in the business of real estate those egos and feeling slighted that's irrelevant it doesn't matter where nobody cares about that we've got to get into that habit of suppress the ego we're all here to do business it's we're treat treat this like a business instead of treating it like it's a reality TV show and all of our emotions right. are on display. It's just, dramas, it's right? The dramas of life. Drama, you don't need that yeah. Hey, hey, Chad, yeah. I, I can I love this conversation, man. I mean, I love learning about new sectors myself. So this conversation will be very helpful. But I won't take a whole lot of your time. So we're coming towards the end of our show here. I always end the show with two key questions. One is, of course, you have a very successful career, and hopefully, it'll be a longer one, and it'll continue more, way more successes. But if you were to actually reflect back and you're, I don't know how old you are, but let's say 15 year or 20 year old self, maybe you're 21 right now, who knows? So if you were to go back 10, 20 years into your life, what is some one insight that you'll share with your then self so that their migration in life becomes easier, right? When I say easier, it becomes more intentional, that they're looking forward to it versus being scared of the challenges and get more depressed. Without question, the biggest thing that I would do differently, and I started when I was 25, mm-hmm. so 18 years in the business, you calculate my age. I wish what I would have done, even pre-25, even 20, I wish I would have saved more money. And yeah. that probably sounds cliche, and it probably sounds like an obvious answer, but like every young kid, especially boys, it seems, we all mm-hmm. want to compete with our friends, and we want yeah. to drive nice cars. I actually drive a less expensive car now when I have much more money than I did when I was in my early 20s, where you're just, you're trying to 
fake it till you make it, whatever the thing is. Maybe there's fiscally smart people out there, much more fiscally smart than I was. But the reason that I would do it, which is, so that's what I would do, but why I would do it is there's so much power in having money and you don't even necessarily need to use that money, but you have so many options available. If you're sitting, if you're 25 years old and you're sitting with a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank, maybe that sounds unobtainable, but I'm sure I've wasted so much money over my years that if I were to go back and started saving when I was, when I should have and investing it, mm-hmm. if you, let's even say at a hundred thousand dollars in your mid twenties, you have so much power to go out and sponsor a deal and to syndicate it and to show people I can contribute this money or I can use this money to find other deals and do the due diligence on other deals. You have so much power available to you just by having that money in your bank account, whether you spend it or whether you don't. And I got that money in my early thirties where I started accumulating that cash and had the ability to do it, I think I would have just been 10 years further ahead had I started that earlier. So what I would do just, you don't need to be so old school where you don't spend any money. I think people still need to live their lives and enjoy their lives and have fun and do things. I just wish I would have saved a higher percentage of what I did so that I'd have that money to money is so key. You can do so much, even just having the money, not even having to do anything with the money, just right, having it right. is so powerful. I mean, again, we can, we can go into like 10 other podcasts and still talk about that. But I think it was, it's a very important topic, right? Because we're not talking about you and I, because I talk it all the time. We're not saying that don't enjoy life, right? That's not the message we're saying, but choose how to spend life. Sometimes you may have to make a decision that's a delayed gratification, right? So be sensible of that. Where I'm not of an opinion, don't spend money on Starbucks. If that gives you happiness and that's the only thing that gives you happiness, go do it. Right? Do it. Do it. Yep. But we're, we're talking about bigger expenditures. We're talking about don't buy a Ferrari when you're 25 years old if you don't have money. You don't right? need it. You, you don't, don't need, need it, it because vanity is going to wear off pretty quick. And then, but the compounding effect of investing your capital up front is so much higher, especially if you're investing that money in yourself. Forget about deals. The skills that you're going to learn is going to give you a thousand times more returns. As what I think, if I may paraphrase your message, that's exactly where your message is right now. That be Absolutely. cognizant of what, how you want to spend your money, especially in your early ages, so you can see the returns of it later on. Absolutely. Yep. Could awesome. Agree completely. Last question, my friend, what is your one, so we take a little bit higher approach right now, right? To kind of like, what is your one wish and desire if you had that intention to, where the humanity should migrate towards? One thing that I'm very sensitive to right now is homelessness. And it's become a very big problem in everywhere. I'm sure you're seeing it in your city. It's a big problem in our downtown right now. The thing that I've discovered about this is that it is a remarkably complex problem that I don't know if it is even solvable. And I say that because we've put so much money into it at a federal level, at a state level, at a local level. There's so much money going into it and the problem seems to be getting worse. So I don't have a proposed solution because there's way smarter people than me that have dedicated their lives to trying to find answers to this. I just know that that is a problem at a humanitarian level. I can't even imagine what these guys are going through. Guys and girls are going through having mental health issues, addiction issues, could just be bad luck. Uh, Mm -hmm. They could have just lost their job and they they couldn't do anything about it. There's so many reasons to be 
empathetic to what these people are going through and knowing that we can't even solve this problem right now, that is a concern. Even removing the humanitarian element for a second, which I don't want to make it to sound cold, but I am a business guy. There's huge business drawbacks to this as well. Not only are we spending a lot of money that has to be requisitioned from somewhere, usually going to be taxpayers or properties or Mm -hmm. any level of taxation, but it's just, it's a slight on our cities where the optics of it look so poor when you're driving through an area and you're just seeing tents and everything there. I obviously feel for the people in there, but that's not great for everybody else that isn't as unfortunate. That has kept me up at night. I've actually laid awake saying, this is such a problem. And I feel for these people. I really do. Really quick story. I actually had a rental house a number of years ago. I let a homeless guy stay in it because it was winter and it was very cold. Mm -hmm. I let a homeless guy stay in there. So I put my money where my mouth is and say that like I do actually feel for these people. It's such a problem that's growing and money isn't solving it. It's a very perplexing problem that I think will be, I think future civilizations will look back at this time on how we let all these people down to such a high degree. And I don't want to end on a bad note, but it is a problem. And it's a problem that I don't see an answer on. And I think it's pervasive. It's not just happening in one city. It's everywhere, right? And when the problem becomes so pervasive... These are wicked problems that don't need a linear. There's no linear way to solve it. I think there's, it's a problem that needs to be tackled, right? Regardless of business or not, from a humanitarian perspective, we need to solve that problem. I don't know how to do it. I mean, I wish I knew that because I would have done it. I'm sure you're in the same position other people are. But I think collectively, if we put our minds together and put that intention out, I'm sure the problem can be solved and somebody will crack that nut and solve it. And I'm hoping that in our lifetimes, we see this problem resolved. So I appreciate you sharing that. I hope you're right. I really do hope you're right for numerous reasons. Yeah. Well, uh, Chad, on that note, well, thank you again for sharing your heart out. We really appreciate it. Where can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they get in touch with you? If they have any questions or, you know, if they need, if they talk about industrial, who knows? Yeah, so I love talking industrial, as you know. So I've got a YouTube channel, uh, which I set up a couple of years ago, and I just talk about everything industrial real estate related. I try to have it be pure value add. So I don't talk about mm-hmm. company. I don't even talk about where I live. I really just tr- try to provide as much value as I can. So if you just search my name, Chad Griffiths, on YouTube, you'll probably see it come up. If you search industrial real estate, you'll definitely see it come up because I think I've done 250 videos already. Well, so there you go. That's I've got a awesome. pretty big library of content yeah. out there. Awesome. Well, Chad, on that note, thank you again for taking the time to be on our show. We really appreciate it. I really liked the conversation, loved all the questions, loved the back and forth and the casual conversation. Loved it. Thanks for being such a great podcast host, too. Thank you. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.